This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Hello, this is uh, Dr. Josh Swaminas, and I'm here with Bill Craig um, on the Peaceful Science podcast. And we were we invited him here just to talk about what he's learned and where he's come in the last couple of years on historical Adam and Eve as he moves on to the next phase to really do and cap off his life's work really with a systematic theology. So, big Bill Craig, thanks for thanks for coming here. Oh, thank you, Josh, for having me on your program. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. So. Uh, you you and I have been walking together for how long has it been? It's been about two years now, right? Yes. Oh, at least. Yes. Yeah. So do you remember how we met? You want to tell people? <laughs> well, I remember you at the Debar conference. That's my most vivid memory. I don't remember if we actually had been introduced or shook hands, but what I that was remember... three years ago, I think, when we first okay. met. Okay. Right? Well, I remember John Bloom was giving a paper where he kept referring to Darwinism, this, Darwinism, that. And you stood up in the audience and said, why do you keep referring to Darwinism? Darwinism's been dead for over 100 years. And Bloom responded, well, then, neo-Darwinism. And you said, neo-Darwinism has been dead since the late 1960s. Why do you not attack what's current in the field instead of criticizing these obsolete views? And it was very <laughs> in your face, very direct, and you're an imposing figure to begin with. So that was my introduction to you. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm a teddy bear, man. I'm not that imposing. Oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny. He actually said he was really concerned about people reading neo-Darwinism into scripture. And my point was, like, why would people read, like, an obsolete theory into scripture? That's not true. <laughs> And so um, it was interesting you know, how that played out. Yeah. So that's so uh, funny because I don't even remember the point that he was making. The bloom <laughs> was making. All, all I remember was this challenge from the floor that was so uh, in your face and so bold. Yeah, it was interesting because I was, I mean, I was probably and probably am one of the younger people in that entire, entire audience. And that was my first time there. So it was probably wow. a little bit. Of a, of a strong impression. So sorry. It was. That. And I think you were one of the few professional scientists there, too. I think for the most part, others were theologians or biblical scholars. Uh, and so that gave you added gravitas. Well, well, thanks. It was an interesting time, too, because that was really um, the, the, you know, that was just, I don't know, it was either a couple weeks before or a couple weeks after publishing the article on Sapientia on the genealogical Adam and Eve, which oh. is really the first article I published on this. And that kind of took me down a rabbit hole with a lot of changes from there that I just did not expect. And um, it, it was an interesting time. Yes, in the last few years, your life has, I imagine, certainly changed in terms of your public profile uh, due to this genealogical Adam work. Yeah, and what's interesting, I think, about it is a lot of people early on thought that I was advocating for a particular point of view. Mm. And I've repeatedly told people, no, I'm not saying that this is what everyone needs to believe. I'm just saying that science doesn't rule it out, so we should have toleration. Yeah. And, we, and we need to be honest with people about the range as possible. And I think you picked that up really quickly, really I early on, partly because of some conversations we had a couple years ago about um, about population genetics, right? Hmm. 
Yeah, that was what got me launched on this quest. Uh, a few years ago, I was speaking uh, at University of British Columbia out in Vancouver. And as part of my visit, I uh, went to Trinity University uh, out there, or Trinity Christian University, I think it's called, and um, spoke to the faculty and was introduced at one point by my friend Michael Horner to Dennis Venema. And it was at that time that Venema first exposed me to the challenge of population genetics to the historical atom or the, the idea of a founding pair. And um, it was very troubling to me. I, I, I didn't know this, this was unfamiliar to me. And I thought at the time, I'm going to have to look into this at some point. And then being at the DeBar Conference at Trinity was what then really launched me into actually doing this study. So this must have been back in 2014 that you first went it to It was prior to the publication of his book with Scott McKnight. That mm -hmm. book had not yet appeared. And then um, we started talking, I guess, in 2018, right? Early 2018, in more yes. detail. Yeah. And at that time, I think a lot of people just assumed that the case was really rock solid. And I think the genealogical, certainty. the genealogical Adam and Eve shook it up in one way and saying, well, hey, Adam and Eve could be recently created. Not only that, they could be de novo created just 6,000 years ago and be ancestors of everyone. But then... Uh, and then, you know, I made my case there and that was interesting in and of itself. And there's a book out now on that, but there was a totally separate set of questions that came up for the concerns you had about a more ancient Adam, right? Yes, exactly. I had already in my mind um, thought that Adam needed to be very ancient. Uh, and so your proposal was not one that resonated with me. It, it didn't strike me as a solution that I would want to advocate. However, it succeeded in showing the possibility of reconciliation of the historical atom with contemporary science. So it was the other aspect of your work that then became so important to me and that was your modeling uh, of the time that it would take to reach this point of convergence at the most recent four alleles. Uh, and that then was uh, just a breakthrough for me when I began to understand what you were doing with that. Yeah, so uh, to clarify for listeners, if, if you mm -hmm. go with a recent genealogical Adam and Eve, there would be a ton of people outside the garden. And, Maybe we all descend from them, but we don't all get DNA from them. However, if Adam and Eve are farther, farther in the past, maybe that's the same way, but there's also now a possibility that there was fewer and fewer people outside the garden until it even raises the possibility that maybe there was no one outside the garden that they interbred with. That's a possibility yes. that, that, we, that we wanted to explore. And it turns out if you put Adam and Eve as far back as, um, you know, 700,000 years, like you're thinking, it's possible that, that maybe there were people outside the garden, but there maybe wasn't very much exchange at all between Adam and Eve. Exactly. That, that's a possibility. So if our viewers today want to understand the essential difference between your proposal in the book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, 
and the proposal that I'm interested in defending, it would be the difference between an ancient atom, an ancient genealogical atom, and a recent genealogical atom. I think that that's a very helpful way to understand the difference. Yeah, I think I think that is a really helpful way because there's different questions that arise in each place, but it really mm -hmm. correctly takes genetics out of the picture in important ways too, because that's actually not the challenge. That's not what drives you to pressing Adam any of that far back. It's really the archeological record. Yes. It's not even really anything having to do with, with genetics. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was on the basis of archeological and paleo paleontological evidence that I was interested in pushing Adam back to the most recent common ancestor of both Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. Uh, and once one makes that move, then as you say, your work on genetic modeling uh, just makes that a non-issue because you're far enough back that there is no impossibility of having the most recent four alleles um, located in a historical Adam at that point. Well, Adam and Eve, to be clear. I mean, yes, Adam I'm sorry, you're quite right. I, I use the, the word historical Adam as shorthand for a historical founding pair. Adam yeah, but Eve, Eve is important too, you know, we can't be uh, sure. All right, all right, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's so cumbersome to keep adding her name. All right, fair enough. But I think, um, I think, there's still going to be questions. And I think it's interesting because actually it took you a while to kind of work through this. Um, even in the last month, I think that you were, as you were reviewing stuff, there was like light bulbs going off. And you're like, oh, I didn't realize this. And, um, you know, we toyed around with different language. Like one idea was maybe calling an ancient genetic Adam and Eve. Hmm. And there's a point, I think, where you realized that even in the way you're thinking about it, you weren't objecting to people outside the garden. And yes, that's right. This was one of the things that disturbed me about your proposal was the notion that there could be people outside the garden. But then I noticed this footnote. Uh, I think it's on page 54 or something <laughs> like that. And it says, by the phrase outside the garden, this just means a wider breeding population. And I thought to myself, well, I accept that. that that's not a problem to me. So that uh, made clear to me that um, this notion of a wider breeding population wasn't the distinguishing factor between our views, but rather it was the dating, whether the uh, location of Adam is very early or whether it's very late. So one could refer to this as either early versus late genealogical atom, or as maybe is clear, ancient versus recent genealogical. Yeah, and then, then it really gets down to not even science per se. I would say it's more about some core presuppositions that come from theology about whether or not Adam and Eve sit at the headwaters of the image of God, whether or not, or a better, probably the most neutral way to put it, do Adam and Eve sit at the headwaters of humanness? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're the first humans in a biblical sense, but was there humanness outside the garden? Mm -hmm. And and I'm okay with that idea, and a lot of other scholars are. Um, you aren't. And so that's yeah. what really it is that pushes it that far back, because you're not okay with the humanness outside the garden.
Right. Yes, that's that's correct. And so when I see evidence of humanness in the ancient archaeological record, I want to include those people as descendants of the founding pair. But see, I think there's still two spoilers for the certainty you should have there, or two things that's in settle that I'm still kind of curious how you're going to work through. Let me let me just explain what the two are, and then maybe you take them one after another. All right. The first is we can definitely conceive of beings that have humanness behavior, but aren't actually internally human, right? So they're uh, kind of like philosophical zombies. As uh, yeah, we can conceive of that, right? So how yeah. do you distinguish? I mean, is it possible? that when we're talking i'm not talking about anyone now in in present day i'm talking about like you know is it possible like some of the evidence you see for humanists five hundred thousand years ago is equivalent to a philosophical zombie and it's confusing you that's the first one so how would you how would you answer that my response to that would be that this simply raises in a new dress the philosophical problem of the existence of other minds Oh, exactly. I agree, which isn't resolvable from evidence. And so now you're going to have a trouble, a troubling problem. Except that it's not a problem. What's not a problem? It's like like solipsism. You know, you can't refute it, but it's it's a philosophical conundrum that is purely academic. Uh, If you take seriously the problem of other minds, we can't prove that others around us today, our contemporaries, Oh no, but there's a difference because we're talking about ontogeny. We're talking about how the world comes to be as it is today. So we can say with certainty that there are no philosophical zombies around today. Well, I but two hundred thousand years ago, were there? I mean, that doesn't create solves. It doesn't create the problem of solipsism or total nihilism, does it? I I would disagree. See, I I think that you let you let a a solipsism or zombie foot in the door. (laughs) <laughs> by saying that these Neanderthals could have exhibited all these cognitive behaviors of people with minds, with human minds, but that they weren't really human. They were philosophical zombies. That opens the door then to saying that about contemporaries. And to me, that is both implausible and morally unconscionable. Um, so there's a, there's a paired problem um with this is to think about artificial intelligence now. Now, to be clear, artificial mm-hmm. intelligence isn't human-like right now. There's no one who really thinks that that um, artificial intelligence has a real mind. However, it's not impossible to imagine in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, there are, uh, there are machines that humans have made mm-hmm. that really appear to have rational minds and to be human-like in that way. Yes. Is that, are they in the image of God? If that was to happen? I don't don't think so, because in that case, one would say they are like philosophical zombies, uh, that they're not really human. They are artificial creations that exhibit externally this sort of human behavior, but they're not, as you put it before, inner human. But how do you know God didn't endow them with that? Um, the the artificial intelligence type. Yeah, how do you? Know? I mean, we're talking we're talking well, about I, science fiction. I, I mean, I would say, I guess, on the basis that we created them ourselves. I mean, if you start appealing to, you know, God endowing them, then again, you are going to degenerate into philosophical skepticism if you begin to entertain those kinds of hypotheses seriously. 
Oh, but we have to entertain them because that's the world we're entering. We have to entertain them. We have to think about them. Yeah, I do think we have to think about them. That's right. But I, I don't think that any serious AI investigator would say that. Oh, not now. I'm talking about in the future. future that he's created this robotic being that can exhibit external human behavior and yet say God has imparted to it a, a human soul. Well, actually, there are people who wonder that. Really? Oh, yeah. We'll have to show you some stuff. Well, I guess you will, because I would expect that those sorts of AI investigators would be naturalists who don't believe in God or who don't believe in anthropological dualism, that they are physicalists and so don't really believe in the reality of a soul. Well, so, you know, I'm doing all this work on uh, historical Adam and Eve, but actually, and I'm a computational biologist, so I'm qualified to, to do the stuff I'm doing, even though I'm not a population geneticist, but actually the majority of my work is on artificial intelligence. And this is where I started. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of ironic how yeah. it's, it's kind of played out. I didn't expect to be working on this, but um, huh. I think there are really interesting questions that arise about not the way the world is now, but counterfactual worlds that actually could become the factual world in the future that raise about questions about theological anthropology. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's very similar to these questions. I mean, I can understand that you just want to dismiss the idea of philosophical zombies in the distant past. But I mean, I, I, I understand that 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 desire to do it, I'm not actually sure what the grounding is for that, except for saying that we don't want it. But let's but let's take away to the, the second question. Second question that I think unsettles this idea of when there's archaeological evidence of humanness, that means you got to push Adam and Eve back. Uh, one idea that other people have explored, and this is distinct from the genealogical Adam and Eve. Um, so, for example, there's a Catholic encyclopedia from 1911 that talks about how the idea of people or living long before Adam and having that world destroyed and then Adam being created, that is absolutely no challenge to the faith. And so would that be a problem? I mean, like, how do you well, know, well, how do you sounds, rule out the idea about yeah. an entire civilization of people? Like a great example would be, is it possible that there were dinosaurs that were a, a race of dinosaurs that actually had rational minds? <laughs> <laughs> in the past, I mean, does that have any, any impact on scripture? Of course not. At least I don't think it does. It just is outside the scope of scripture. Is that a problem? Um, what one would need to do would be to ask the two questions. Is there any scriptural basis for such an affirmation? Well, of course not. No, and, and there one is reminded of the old Schofield reference Bible gap theory which suggested exactly something like that, this gap in between verse one and verse two of Genesis one, during which the previous world was destroyed. And Old Testament scholars have uniformly rejected this as reading between the lines. And then the other would be the scientific question. Well, well to be clear, we the, gap theory, the gap theory is rejected by scholars for the precise exegetical moves, but the general idea of there being a larger creation event before the six days has actually not been rejected quite so. Oh, yet. no, no, I realize that. I, in fact, I hold that myself. But 
what I'm saying is the idea of a previous world inhabited by human beings, rational creatures, that then was destroyed by God and he started over again then in verse 2, that that's an exegetical figment of the interpreter's imagination. But it's not in conflict with scripture is the key thing, right? It's not that scripture teaches it, but there's space um, for it potentially. Well, it's in conflict with it insofar as it represents an unnatural imposition onto scripture of something that I think scripture uh, means to exclude and does not affirm. You can't just read between the lines whatever you want to stick in there. That's bad exegesis. That's eisegesis. Well, I mean, this, we got to be clear here. It's, for it to be eisegesis, I have to be saying that there's something that I believe that is not in Scripture, and then I'm now going to claim that Scripture teaches it. But I'm not doing that. I understand that, but I guess by eisegesis, I mean as well reading things in between the lines, like this hypothesis that there was a world of rational uh, creatures uh, on this planet that existed prior to the advent of Adam and Eve, or maybe during the age of the dinosaurs. There's, there's just no. Well, there's not exegetical support, but the question is, is there exegetical. So some people I would say who are actual exegetes, not like me uh, would say that, and actually theologians, I mean, Catholics, you take an essentially a Catholic view in many ways. Yes. I mean, you do deviate in some ways. You're not as, you don't, you don't really believe in original sin, if I remember right. But, um, well, we should clarify for our, our viewers that the doctrine of original sin doesn't just mean that Adam and Eve fell into sin and that there was a first sin. The doctrine of original sin is a very rich, complex doctrine that has to do with the imputation of Adam's sin to all of his progeny, with the corruption uh, introduced into the human race that was then passed on from generation to generation, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, so you're and, talking like a particular view of, of original sin. Yes, I don't accept the doctrine of original sin as that rich, complex doctrine that I just described that you find, for example, in Roman Catholic theology and in Reformed theology. Yeah, so um, still, what I'm saying is that even in Roman Catholicism, they make space for the idea of the possibility of an entirely That's actually how they make space for the idea of uh, aliens and other planets in the image of God, right? So um, that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, that we don't actually have evidence for right now, um, and we're right. curious about. And if we found that, that would unsettle theology, to be clear. It would raise a lot of questions, but it wouldn't overturn theology. It wouldn't overturn scripture no. because, right? Right, right. There's a, a big difference in my mind between talking about histories on other planets and other galaxies in the universe, which aren't addressed at all by the Bible, and interpolating into the history of this planet um, things that the Bible would seem to exclude. But isn't that what you're doing when you believe in old Earth 
and that there was even dinosaurs that existed and all of that? No, no, that, that's a very good point because one is interpolating in the age of the dinosaurs and things like that. But that, I mean, the, the scriptures do talk about the beasts, the sea monsters, flying things. So it does, it does have those sorts of things. But what it doesn't countenance would be any sort of self-conscious, rational being endowed with freedom of the will, who is a moral agent uh, prior to humanity on this. But, but it does. It has the angels, right? Yeah, but they're not earthly creatures. So, yes, it has the angels, but they're not earthly. Are they not earthly? I have to think about that. So the fallen angels, I guess, are earthly, but the unfallen ones aren't, is your idea? Well, even the fallen ones are not earthly in their provenance. They are in this other realm of beings that then later can come to the earth and wreak havoc, but their provenance is a spiritual higher realm. They're not part of the creation described in Genesis chapter one. All right, we're wandering a little bit. I think the key point though, yeah. is that if you can't rule out like another race of humans before Adam and Eve, then that archeological evidence can't push you back. And if you can't rule out um, the idea of philosophical zombies in the distant past, which you feel like you have, and I'm not trying to actually make your point, mm -hmm. then that still wouldn't necessarily push you back. But I think you feel like you've really done all of those things and including the idea of rolled out uh, human, humanness outside the garden. So that's really what then pushes you back because whenever you see evidence in the archaeological record of, of humanness, you really feel like you have to, you know, that, that, you know, Adam and Eve really has to happen. I take it at face value rather than resort to these, I think, essentially skeptical moves about denying that one is in contact with another mind here rather than a zombie. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't go down that path. I think the more curious for one for me is the idea of, you know, like if I was going to adopt your view of the image of God to say image of God before Adam and Eve, um, mm -hmm. that, that I think is, is really interesting to me. I mean, I think, I think that it raises interesting theological questions that are really at the boundary of theology. I mean, it's really at the forefront and, it, and it's raising interesting questions that yeah. I want to explore. Now, one way you could have human beings in the image of God prior to Adam and Eve would be if you take a sequential view of the creation story in chapter two and break that couple off from the original creation in chapter one, verses 27 to 28, and say that was the original creation of humanity. And then eons later, along come this particular couple, Adam and Eve. You could do it that way. And that doesn't appeal to skeptical arguments about yeah. other minds or uh, uh, it isn't reading things in between the scriptures. It just is taking a particular view of the relation of chapter two to chapter one. Yeah, and there's also a strong tradition of reading Genesis that way. I'd also add to you don't necessarily have to do it sequentially. You could just say that Genesis one is covering a much broader geography mm -hmm. and broader temporal time. And so it's like a more speaking more generally about a large space that's bigger than just Adam and Eve. Um, yes. Without, I, I do think that's correct. And so, 
But I understand, though, that uh, there's been a lot of, and you're a systematic theologian, or you're writing a systematic theology. And so there has been a lot of systematic theology in certain traditions built up around the idea of all of these things being coextensive, meaning that if you have one, you have the other, and not really having a lot of space to consider, uh, you know, the idea of, of image of God before Adam and Eve and really wanted to consider them all together as a coherent whole. And no, I think you're really speaking out of that control. Uh, that, that... I am. That's the, that's the view toward which I'm inclined, that we shouldn't uh, think of the difference between the creation accounts in chapter one and chapter two as temporally separated, uh, sequentially ordered events, but rather, as you put it, they are represent a change of focus. The first one is a panoramic view and then the second account is the focused view, but they are in fact describing the same events. That would be the view I'd be inclined toward and that I defend in the book. And I guess, you know, we're going to be, we've also been talking about writing a book together and yes. we kind of gotten a little more planning together. We're actually splitting it into two books, one that's gonna be written by you, right? Yes. And then one that uh, we're going to probably write together. Um, they'll come yes. out a little later. Part of it is uh, COVID's turned my life upside down. So it's still <sighs> down writing. Um, and uh, you, you're probably doing better. You're getting more writing time in. I'm you? doing better. Yes. Under this uh, quarantine. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So that's part of it. But then part of it, too, is I think you really have a lot of urgency in getting your systematic theology done. We've had a lot yes. of fun exploring historical Adam and Eve, but you need to move on to the next thing. And then also, um, I think there's a, I think there's interesting things that I think we can do together, um, and there's interesting things that you can do on your own. And and right. I think doing it as in two books is going to give us an opportunity to do both of those things. Yes, right? I do think that it's true, and I, I have appreciated your help and advice along the way. Yeah, so I think one thing that I really hope that we can do in our book, um, I'm curious your thoughts on it, is I really want to see how we can serve the church really by trying to to mark out the other end of the bracket of what's possible. <clears throat> so the genealogical Adam and Eve really kind of defines, I would say, like the most recent places you could put Adam and Eve, what the limitations are on that, yes. where you'd have to go. Um, but one possibility in our book is to really kind of start marking out like the other boundaries of that space that can make sense theologically, even for views that we don't even hold yes. uh, precisely. Um, and also scientifically, uh, what, what can actually be consistent with the evidence. I think that that um, is really what was my goal with the geological Adam Eve, not to press my point of view, but to serve a large range of diverse points of view within the church. And um, I, I hope and I wonder if like uh, if our book that we're doing together could really cap that off and that sort of Yes, way. in a way you set one bookend, oops, you've set one bookend on the more recent genealogical Adam and then we could set the other bookend with a more ancient uh, genealogical atom. And so what's interesting about this is you say genealogical, and I think a lot of people are going to want to know why then the genetics is important, because we could have a genealogical Adam and Eve that are not our genetic ancestors are interbreeding with a large, large population. And then actually even all the stuff on the time to most recent four alleles doesn't even matter. And it may be actually that's what makes this a safe conversation now. But Good I think point. part of it is that you still would want to minimize the, the amount of interbreeding, right? Now, do you mean me or just one in general? 
Well, I think you personally would want to. And I yes, think I do, I do want to minimize it, Josh, because on the view I take, yeah. their descendants would be engaged in bestiality in interbreeding with these other non-human hominins. And that's distasteful um, and raises all sorts of problems. So I would prefer to think that the descendants of Adam and Eve, uh, and I think Kenneth Kemp said something like this, would tend in time to isolate, to distance themselves from these other non-human hominins. And um, there would be a sort of natural yeah, so it's really revulsion or repulsive toward that. But as you've also pointed out, just because something's repulsive doesn't mean it didn't happen. So granted, granted. Um, which is also an argument uh, um, or in a, a rebuttal, I guess, of your objection to philosophical zombies too, incidentally, just because you find it repulsive doesn't mean it's not true. But regardless, <laughs> I think that um, I think that there is reasons to wonder about that. And I think that that's a legitimate question that scientists from any persuasion, including mine, including atheists, really should take seriously. And I think that's one of the things uh, that we really want to explain in an accessible way. Some of the work that came out a little over two years ago in the exchange with Richard Buggs and Gager, yes. um, Dennis Venema, Stephen Schaffner, and myself, really about what really does the evidence demand of us in terms of this? Like, Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, it would be wonderful if uh, at a future conference, say like at the DeBar conference at Trinity that is ongoing, if this issue could be reprised because you've spoken there on the genealogical atom that featured a recent genealogical atom. And it would be very interesting for, for you to explain to them your modeling that dates the most recent four alleles and how that would, what implications that might have for Adam and Eve. I don't think that most people who attend this conference have a clear handle on that at all. Yeah. Um... I think you're right. You should talk to, to Tom McCall about it. And see yes, it I, I would like to. I, he, uh, for those who don't know him, uh, he's a professor of theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and very interested in analytic theology or analytic philosophy of religion. And he's been engaged with these debates. Yeah, so this is the part that's actually been particularly interesting for me to see unfold I, very accidentally i ended up at the epicenter of a lot of this like i mean like i said it's not even my primary area <laughs> um, there's a story to tell there but um there's several areas where i think there was a mistranslation or misunderstandings or misrepresentations um or mistakes and it probably depended on the person involved which one of those things it was about the translation about the science of ancestry into the theology of uh -huh. And one of those was the genetic genealogical distinction. <laughs> um, and that has taken, I would say, two years to really work out itself within the conversation for people to really get and yeah. really writing a book for people to understand across uh, across the divide into theology. But I would also say even, you know, within science, like there's a lot of scientists that were really confused on this. And Really? Interesting. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because for me, like I've been wondering about this stuff, but it kind of fell into place very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then I was kind of on to the next thing of looking at the, the questions about genetics, right? And, yes. and the genetic bottlenecks, uh, more yes. ancient. 
And then that fell into place really quickly. But everyone was caught up on another conversation. <laughs> and so it, it's weird. I think it's going to take in total, like, you know, a good three to five years total for all the stuff to really become understood, even though a lot of it was really kind of made clear about two or three years ago. Isn't that interesting? I, I think you're quite right. There is a time lag. And especially I have talked to colleagues um, who haven't even read the book. And so they don't have a clue as to what's going on. They just hear rumors. That's all they've got is just rumors. And you can imagine the misunderstandings and misrepresentations that that creates. Well, rumors aren't necessarily bad. I guess people interested. What sorts of rumors are there? <laughs> well, that you're an, uh, a methodological naturalist, for example. Oh, that's crazy. Countenance divine acts uh, in or miraculous acts, things of this sort, you know. Um, How does that rumor stick when the book actually makes space for de novo creation? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Actually, that's one of the things that, again, makes me uncomfortable about that hypothesis. Uh, I, uh, I, my, my view also has room for a de novo creation, but that's not the view that I favor. I would prefer to think that God used non-human hominins uh, as a kind of material cause for his creation of Adam and Eve. But it, it, for those who don't like that, and there are lots of people who don't like that, they could hold to the de novo creation as on your model. Yeah, I think um, th that's interesting stuff. Do you think that those people kind of wondering about this, it's worth actually reading this book? Are they going to be able to get it, the details by just hearing um, like a reading review or hearing about it here or there, or do they think they really need to get into details? Boy, Josh, I really think you have to wrestle with the book. Uh, it took me a long time to really get a handle on this because these concepts are so foreign to those of us who are not scientists, who are lay people scientifically. And so you have to um, chew it and uh, digest it. And that really takes some time and effort, I think, uh, more than just reading a book review. I think that that's fun. And I'm having a blast. Hmm. You said that this has kind of been stressful for you. Well, I don't understand. <laughs> well, it has been really agonizing for me. Let me put it this way. I read Hermann Gunkel's uh, introduction to Genesis. Gunkel was uh, a liberal, naturalistic German scholar back around the turn of the 19th to 20th century, who proposed that the Genesis stories are just a blend of myth and legend that is greatly indebted to the ancient myths of Mesopotamia and that there was really nothing historical in them at all. And at one point, Gunkel says, um, it's really hard emotionally for children to give up their belief in Santa Claus. But he says, as theologians, we need to come of age and to divest ourselves of these literalistic views of 
Genesis. Yeah, that's actually one of your critiques of my book, that it takes an implausibly literal view, is what you say. Yes, but I, I have, that, that remark by Gunkel has haunted me. Uh, and I do feel like the little child, you know, who's been told there is no Santa Claus, in the sense that these stories about the creation and Adam and Eve and the flood and the Tower of Babel are not just literal historical. But I, I guess I don't entirely understand this, Bill, because it's not like science forces you down that path. They could be entirely literal. Um, well, I think there are good reasons in the text for thinking that it isn't meant to be literal. And, and I think with respect to the flood, there, Josh, I'm sure you would agree that flood geology is just hopeless. There is oh, no but I think the issue, way you can say that oh yeah, all flood geology is a problem, but, but let's be clear here. Scripture doesn't teach a global flood. Well, in a literal sense, because they didn't have a concept. They no. didn't have a concept of a globe, so they can't... Right, but there you're trading on a word, Josh. You're trading on the word global. What it does teach is a worldwide flood. But which world? Well, the world that is described in the narratives where the water covers the highest mountains, everything under the heavens is destroyed. Yes, I don't All think it's a capacity to describe. Actually, it, it gets even to what you were talking about with, with even some of the stuff of the Babylonian world map. Like their world, it didn't deny the reality of other places. In fact, it, it knew about it, but their world was very, very regional. And so I think it, it is literally talking about a, a regional flood. That uh -huh. is their whole world. Yeah. Well, that's a, an, an entirely different subject that... But yeah, you're right. Needs to be... But what, I could, what you could at least grant me is that this is a plausible literal reading that doesn't have the problem of phylogeology. Well, yeah, I guess I would grant that. I don't think it's the most plausible sure. reading. Sure. Um, but yes, it's not, it's not implausible. So but I, I don't I'm think that's the, that, the that, I mean, here I kind of agree with the young earth creationist and the creation scientist that the most plausible reading of the text is that this was a worldwide flood that wiped out all terrestrial life on earth. And that all, all that was spared was those life forms that were aboard the ark. Yeah, so I think the only way you could take that reading is if you were reading into Genesis a very modern scientific understanding of what the earth is. So that's why I'm not comfortable with that. But I get that you disagree. We don't need to have to debate that to death. But if that's your view, then I, you know, I get why you feel a little bit challenged. I mean, yeah. for me, I was raised young earth creationists. In a lot of ways, I'm very comfortable with the young earth creationists reading scripture. Uh -huh. As long as it really is, I mean, honestly, I feel like I'm mainly taking a young earth creationist reading of, uh, of Genesis in the book, just taking it more traditionally and more literally, which is what makes space for all the stuff that we discussed yes. for an old earth and all of that. Yes. Um, ironically, but. Um, yes, I think that's right. So it sounds like your stress isn't really even with science. It's just more about your personal journey of wrestling with the text and what it says and how it might actually be different than how you. Well, it. yes, although I do think that these are 
issues that are occasioned by science. I mean, if, if flood geologists were right that the seashells on the top of Mount Everest are evidence of a worldwide flood, that they were deposited there by Noah's flood, that would be easily compatible then with the text, but that isn't what the geological evidence indicates. And so we have to come up with some way of understanding these chapters about the flood that doesn't commit us to a literal worldwide catastrophe that wiped out all terrestrial life on Earth. And one way to do it would be to make it a regional flood, as you suggest. Another way would be to say that this is mytho-history, that it's not a literal historical account of what happened. Let me say this, to, to step back a moment, what this shows, I think, to our listeners today is that you don't interpret the stories of Genesis 2 and 3 about Adam and Eve in isolation or out of context. They are part of this whole primeval history that includes the flood, the tower, Babel, the table of nations in chapter 10, and so on. So uh, that's why we're talking now about the flood, is because that is all, this is all part of a kind of package deal um, contextually in Genesis 1 to 11, this so-called primeval history. Yeah, I think, uh, and, and I think also literarily what it's doing is it's not actually trying to give us, you know, a detailed view of the past. It's really functioning, I think, as like an introduction to the, to the Pentateuch, right? And, yes, yes. And That's then right. uh, really kind of explaining kind of this mess that, that the world is in and, it, and there's like a lot of strong uh, language of, that resonates with exile, which uh, the which uh, was where you know a lot of this was finally um, compiled, even though the stories probably existed beforehand. Was you know, yes, I think that's controversial. Um, a lot of scholarship on the interpretation of Genesis is based on giving it a post-exilic date, and if our viewers aren't familiar with that, that would mean that it was after the Jews or during the time that the Jews were exiled in Babylon. Like when Daniel, when Daniel was... Uh... Yes, that's right. When Daniel was in Babylon and this was Before after... Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah uh, come back. Came back. That's right. And I think... And to be clear, I'm that does not a... deny mosaic authorship because it could be... That, Mos uh, uh, that you know, Moses actually wrote key pieces of it or compiled key pieces of it, yes. and it gets recompiled again um, in the exile. So, yes, in fact, there are these source critical theories about precisely that sort of composition. Like but, uh, John I, Salehammer takes an inerrancy view, and Seth Postel is probably what I'd point to. So when we say source critical, we don't mean that in the skeptical, not trusting scripture point of view. Though some no, people could, no. Uh, so this is consistent with inerrancy. Like Greg Beale would also yes. say too. What I want to say though is that I think conclusions that are predicated on the assumption of an exilic 
or post-exilic date for Genesis are tenuous because although I'm not an Old Testament scholar, from my reading of um, issues pertinent to the dating of these documents, I, I am very skeptical uh, that Genesis comes together that recently. I, I think that it was pre-exilic uh, and that therefore um, any interpretations that have to presuppose an exilic or post-exilic date I think become more tenuous. But I mean, can it be both? Can it be like, you know, uh, it's being, it's a story that was composed pre-exilic, but then it was retold exilically. And, you know, it's this story being that's being retold. And... Well, the question would be whether or not you have evidence for the Pentateuch being compiled or, or Genesis being written during or after the exile. And so I think the evidence that people point to is um, strong interactions with ancient Near Eastern literature from the Babylonian myths. And so that's what they yeah. point to. Now, maybe they're, maybe they're wrong, and I'm not an expert enough to adjudicate this. Um, but I, I guess I am a little bit resistant to the either-or thinking. I mean, it's very clear that these are being retold stories. And the yeah. way how stories are retold is that you kind of, are truthfully telling the story from before, but you're also adding in, you know, uh, a spin to it often. And in this case, I would say it's an inspired spin mm -hmm. that's engaging with contemporary issues. That's, that's almost how um, stories are always told. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you can even see that today in how movies are told, right? So it'll be like an old book that they're telling and retelling in a movie, but then they'll, yes, right. they'll tell that story now in a way that engages some contemporary issues. So. Yeah. Uh, it just seems to me, based on what I've read, that the linguistic evidence pertinent to Genesis and the Pentateuch uh, suggests that it's not that recent hmm. in its compilation. And so it's better to have interpretations that are free of that assumption. Sure. Um, the more assumptions that an interpretation has to make, by the very nature of it, the less probable it becomes. You, you, should have interpretations that are as free of controversial assumptions as possible, I think. Now, you know, part of your concern too is like you're going to a mythological view in some ways, but I don't actually really well, know if mythological. Mytho-historical. You say mytho-historical, right? Yeah, because I do, I'm, I'm defending the historical Adam and Eve. So I guess I'm, one not question I have is, is it a good way to think about it? Um, I mean, you could never really call it this way academically, but almost kind of like a, a, a nonfiction graphic novel or a comic book. Oh, gosh. That would be even more explosive than calling a mythos. Well, no, no, because, like, you know, I'm like a good friend of mine, John Hendricks, is a, is a, is a renowned illustrator. He, uh -huh. wrote, um, he wrote a graphic novel, a, a comic book. Yes, I understand. About Henrik Bonhoeffer. Oh, it's, it's, it's like, he did historical work. It's like yeah. a history book, but it's in the genre of a comic book. Yes. And that doesn't somehow undermine the reality that Bonhoeffer lived. No, and no, that's right. Even though it's true that comic books, you know, from a genre point of view are all fictional. Well, I mean, except when they're not, so. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you're, you're quite right, I think, in pointing that out. 
So is that a good way to explain it or? Well, I don't think it's a good way to explain it because that is just an illustration that might help the layperson, but it's not one that would satisfy the Old Testament scholar who's looking to get a careful, uh, nuanced analysis oh, sure. of the genre of this writing. I mean, well, I agree. Sort of I think like saying the book of Revelation is a graphic novel. Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm I'm more trying to help uh, or think about how like uh, like how you know people who are not immersed in that world like me right. appreciate. What you, I mean, honestly, we've been struggling. It's not just you. At the bar people have really struggled. It's been really interesting to watch people struggle how to label the genre of Genesis. It seems yes. right of uh, Genesis right. one to eleven. It seems to sit into a different sort of genre. Yeah. Than, than really they can point to. It's not really ancient Near Eastern myth, precisely. Right. No. It's, uh, it deviates from that pattern pretty strongly yeah. and importantly. I think it's so. not really the rest of Genesis. Um, it's not really the Pentateuch. It, and, and so some people even suggest that it, we just need to put it into its own like bookshelf. Is That's <laughs> the only thing in that genre. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, as you may remember, when we were there the first time, Bill Arnold, who is an Old Testament scholar at Asbury Seminary, spoke. And in his paper, Bill Arnold presented this view of the genre of Genesis 1 to 11 as mytho-history. And that was the first time I had ever heard this labeled or discussed. And it really lit a fire under me. I mean, you, you were the scientific fire that was lit <laughs> beneath me. But Bill Arnold's stronger analysis was the biblical or interpretive fire that was lit under me and that I then began to explore after the conference. And so I owe a lot to Bill Arnold for this genre analysis. But I want to come back to this. You keep on, you, you've said several times that this has been like a very stressful, difficult. Right. Ah, I'm having a blast. Why aren't you having fun with me? <laughs> I mean, do you think you could? I don't know. I, I guess I think it's just too weighty and and significant and so yeah but what's at risk though Bill okay that's a good question Josh I, I, I have to ask myself that question I, I've always sort of taken this to be a peripheral trivial issue um, not part of what is called mere Christianity I mean what belongs to mere Christianity are things like the existence of God, the deity of Christ, his atoning death, his resurrection. If you affirm those, who cares about the historical Adam, right? Well, the problem is, although we've talked today all about Genesis and its view of Adam and Eve, you've got this New Testament material on Adam and Eve that cannot be ignored. You have the teachings. Yeah, but we've already shown how you can work that into your views. So what exactly is the risk? Well, oh, well, but, but my, my view, the view that I've come to is the end of a long, long struggle with these <laughs> issues. Yes, I do think I can accommodate that New Testament teaching, but this is what makes it important. You asked what was at stake. I think. But but that's not at stake is the point. I mean, from the work that well, we've but, kind of but figured that's out. To, that's to, <laughs> that is, a, it's, it, you, you, you're looking at it 
from the end point, not from the beginning point. From the beginning point, there's a lot at stake. What's at stake is the infallibility and inerrancy of the New Testament. We knew this two years ago, though, Bill. Didn't didn't you realize two years ago that it was going to work out? Well, I, I suppose I had a sort of rough idea but no, no, I've really r- struggled with this and wrestled with this. I, I probably mean, need I to be more empathetic here. The, the most difficult part of this whole question is not the Old Testament material. It's yeah. the New Testament material. And you, I still haven't gotten to my main point. And that is, it's the statements of Jesus himself hmm. about Adam and Eve, Noah and the flood, in this primeval history where Jesus seems to all appearances to believe in the historicity of these events. So if you say that, well, these are not historical persons and not historical events, that means that Jesus held false beliefs. And that is incompatible with his omniscience because to be omniscient is to believe all truths and to hold no false beliefs. And that is incompatible with his deity. So as crazy as it sounds, I think what's at stake is the deity of Christ. Uh, I don't know, Bill. I think, I think you're missing out. I think that this is, that this is meant to be fun. Like, Like the foundation of our faith, the cornerstone of our faith is that God raised this man, Jesus, from the dead. And that's how we know that God exists. He's good and he wants to be known. Yeah, we can talk about the cosmological argument. That's just, that's just another web in the thread and, you know, a thread in the web that just makes sense of it all. But we don't have to know about the cosmological argument to come to confident belief that Jesus rose from the dead and that he's good and that God wants to be known. Yeah. Well, you want to affirm the deity of Christ. Sure. Yeah. And Jesus, Jesus gave enough statements about who he was that, and he was dead. So for God to raise him from the dead, there's like, I mean, it's a statement of the Trinity. It's a statement of affirmation of his message. Yeah. It's the whole deal. I mean, you can't, you can't just go with the resurrection and stop there. I mean, they, they, that yeah. actually kind of leads you down a path that right. brings you to all these things. Right. And, you know, from there, you know, that's like a certain place. That's the cornerstone where we can like plant a foot. And then we yes. have like a, another foot where we can kind of put our foot into less stable places yes. and play around. Not because um, it's not important um, and not because there isn't an answer, but because we have confidence and it's, and it's kind of the joy of figuring it out all together, uh, you know, in community uh-huh. um, because we care and it matters. I think, I think that's, how I approach it. Um, yes, and I do agree with all that you've said there. Um, when we encounter an obstacle or an objection, however, that we don't know the answer to, I am reluctant to just punt to mystery and say, well, I, I have firm grounds for believing that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore was who he, he claimed to be. And as for this objection, well, it's a mystery. God knows. I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah, but I think that, that's, that. that's a, that's I, a, that's I a character, though, answer. right? I'm not saying that. I'm saying... Right. I'm not you, saying... You, to you, you want to find an answer, too. Yeah, because I think the right 
Well, like the healthy, the the correct, the right response to mystery is curiosity. Mm. Mm. And so it's not disengagement. I like that. And so yeah. to say it's a mystery doesn't mean, oh, now I'm checking out and moving on. That's to say, right. oh, now I want to figure this out. And I, ha- I can do that. And I can even acknowledge this a fact of mystery because I have confidence. And so I have confidence elsewhere, but there's a mystery there and it's important. And so I want to pursue and to understand. That's the reason why I cared about all the genetic stuff, not because there was something at risk for me, but because uh-huh. I was curious. Like the, and, and like, who wouldn't be, who shouldn't be curious, right? So um, wouldn't that be a different approach? That's a different way of understanding mystery. Yes, though that doesn't address the problem of the inerrancy and authority of scripture. Uh, I mean, I don't think that you have to believe in scriptural infallibility and inerrancy or even inspiration in order to show that Jesus rose from the dead. I think you can just treat these New Testament documents as ordinary historical sources for the life of Jesus and make a very persuasive case that Jesus rose from the dead. So affirming that Jesus rose from the dead isn't going to get you to biblical authority. And and that's a doctrine I would be extremely loath to give up. I wouldn't want my, in other words, Josh, I wouldn't want my solution to be like Peter Enns says. (laughs) Peter Enns would say, yeah, Paul, Paul really believed in the historical Adam, and he reinterpreted these Genesis stories in this and that way, but you know, he was just wrong. Paul got it wrong. Kind of what Scott McKnight says, too, Um, and it's also kind of... I I don't want to say that. I, I am... And that that would be a position that would affirm the resurrection and give you that firm uh, foot in one place, but it it gives up too much uh, on the other side. And so I guess that's why for me, this is an agonizing struggle. Yeah, I mean, I I, I wouldn't want to go there either. I mean, I guess I suppose I've taken more of a confessional approach where I can say that I affirm that the Bible is inerrant and infallible and all that it teaches. Yes. But I don't always understand right. how that's the case. And yes. I'm okay with the fact that I don't understand. And that's not to check out and not try. I mean, there's a mystery there that I want to pursue and understand. Sure. And I'm okay with it not all fitting together hmm. Hmm. at once. But um, part of that might be temperament. Um, I'm also, though I'm not Lutheran, I think I'm a, a bit influenced by Lutheran theology in this regard. I think it also uh-huh. is how science works. I think we know things in science, at least we think we do, but it doesn't all fit together and we're comfortable uh-huh. with that. We see mystery all over the place and we want to enter into it. But um, with all that said, I think we're going to have a lot of fun continuing to work together. I'm really looking forward to following how things go. And um, I have to say, it's been one of the great joys of the last couple of years is uh, being able to spend so much time with you, Bill, and getting to know you. I have to say the same. I mean, this sort of a mutual admiration society. You've been such a tremendous help to me. And I don't know what I would have done without you in this. Well, it was a very providential time. What were your biggest surprises looking back on the last couple of years? What was the biggest surprises? Yeah, what are some of the biggest surprises? Okay, well, 
I mean, apart from substantive issues, one of the big surprises for me is how one cannot trust the secondary literature on this subject. <laughs> over and over again, I find these biblical scholars making claims about things and sometimes citing. Uh, well, we saw that on the scientific yes. side too, right? Well, yes, I was going to add that. You, you, you preempted me there, but, uh, and not just biblical scholars, but also on the scientific side, which is shocking to me that you, you've got to look at the primary sources because over and over again, you just can't trust people to get it right. So that's been a big surprise to me. I mean, that, that creates a big problem though, because knowing you get all of it right, so it really means that we need collaborations with yes, people that's right. across the field. They don't have a polemic agenda that really want to help one another and really dialogue, right? Yeah. Any other surprises? I mean, it it makes one acutely aware of one's own limitations that if these other people are getting it wrong, perhaps I am too. Um, so that, that was one of the main things, I think. Um, I suppose on the scientific side, I have really been stunned by the rapidity with which the paleoanthropological evidence and archeological evidence progresses concerning uh, Neanderthals and other ancient hominins. It, 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 these people are just digging up new stuff all the time. And, and it blows me away. It's breathtaking. Uh, these, these discoveries at this cave in France called the Boinicel Cave, they're just breathtaking. And then just a few weeks ago, they found this piece of string, a three-ply cord that was made by these Neanderthals. I mean, it just... It, it's amazing it, stuff, isn't it? It, it, it is amazing. It so really just is. for the fun of it, I want to have you back some more just to talk about some of the science papers that we've come across. Oh, all right. I, I, I honestly do feel sorry for some Christians who are so close-minded and uninterested in these things that they never have the joy of these discoveries and learning about them because they are just fascinating. I think it's sometimes hard for people at science to understand how big science is just in terms mm -hmm. of numerically how large it is oh. and how quickly it's progressing and how decentralized it is. Yeah. So, what I um, find is that some scientists are just as ignorant of another area of science outside their specialization as I am, <laughs> even though I'm not a scientist. I, yeah, I think it, it's great, honestly. Like the thing about it, I remember you were actually saying, well, you can just summarize the field of archaeology right here, kind of what oh. people have learned there. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't think I can do that, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even if I just had one word for every paper published, probably in the last two years, it would be too much to fill a book. <laughs> and that's uh, that's just, and, and, to, and of course, I haven't read them all. I mean, all no. you could really hope to do as a scientist is to try and tell the story in a way that's true to the literature, in a way that's yeah. going to be robust and hold Well, I have been very impressed with the way you keep current on what is being published. In my field, philosophy, there's little need to keep current. Um, on the contrary, some of the great works are 
very, very old. But in your field, it's so rapidly advancing and you manage to keep abreast of developments. And that's really impressive to me. Yeah, it's not just me. I've had a, I've had a lot of help. Um, you know, a lot of people forward me stuff. It's been great. And also, you know, peaceful science community has been really phenomenal. I mean, I, there's a lot of scientists there. Uh, you mainly interacted with me, but there's you've also met Nathan Lentz, for example. Yes, who's an atheist biologist who's been really involved with us, and 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 there's others too. I mean, I think we 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 even fight with each other about stuff and argue about things. <laughs> That's part of how I mean, like science. Uh, how some people put it is uh, is actually not really a set of beliefs or a methodology. It's really just a process about convincing one another. Huh. And so that's part of the reason why we have very uh, we have a very particular way of reasoning about evidence that's not natural, but it's also fairly common among scientists. So it allows us to make progress quickly and in integrating new knowledge because we think about things in the same way. Wow. And um, and we kind of have to because it's such a gigantic you know, community. Um, yeah. And because of that, you know, I, I mean, I've really tried to put my ideas out there as quickly and as publicly as possible so I can get the most robust scientific criticism I can get mm. and incorporate mm. it and respond to it and change my point of view as much as I can. In the end, um, I want it to be a, a trustworthy voice in science where, yes. where right. people... Right. Well, know that I'm not just putting forward a, an idiosyncratic view. Yes. I'm not advocating for a particular position, but I'm trying to take their questions seriously and I'm trying to give a real rigorous response that's going to stand up to scrutiny. So that's my goal. And, yes. um, I, and I'm sure I don't always hit it sometimes, but I think in some of the stuff on Adam and Eve, I've been really fortunate to have made a contribution. Mm. And I've been the beneficiary. Well, you know, it's, it's been mutual, like you say. But hey, we've been having a fun time talking. I'm sure we're going to talk again, Bill. And okay. you know, thanks a lot for your time. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.